So uh, this morning we're in Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be looking at two churches. We're going to be looking at the church uh, in Smyrna and the church in Pergamum. And, um, you know, as we think about these churches, we think about what Jesus is doing with respect to these churches. It really is, it really is quite fascinating. So uh, if you think about it, we have, uh, we have a little bit of a uh, kind of an equivalent that's going on today. So, um, I think social media, Facebook, Twitter, some things like this, um, are allowing what normally would be kind of one-on-one debates and discussion to um, to actually be viewed by all kinds of people. I have a and I have a real struggle with this because I like to debate. Um, I think it, maybe it probably came from seminary because in seminary you're you're constantly talking about ideas, things that matter. So you're talking about the word, you're, you're, you're deep down in it and, and you're wrestling through things and so you're constantly in this discussion mode, this debate mode, if you will. And, um, and so I think because of that, I tend to just see everything as an opportunity. Uh, debating for me is not a, you know, if, if, if you enter into debate with someone, uh, a lot of times people feel like they're, you know, you're going to hurt my feelings or your feelings are going to be hurt. And so in my family, and just kind of the way it is, we, we didn't, we don't debate. Um, my mom doesn't like that. To her, that's, uh, that's turmoil. And so at the house over Thanksgiving or Fourth of July, whenever we're all there, we all studiously avoid anything that hints or smacks of disagreement or debate. Um, we just don't go there. But Facebook, wow, that's a whole nother subject. Like, I can just lay it all out there and uh, frequently do, uh, as some of you know and have observed. And everybody can see the discussion that's happening. So think about what's taking place as Jesus comes to these churches. Because the letter is written. And then the letter would have gone on its little journey, and the letter would have showed up first, probably in Ephesus, and they would have read it in its entirety. And so Ephesus would have heard about Ephesus, Jesus' challenge to them, but they also would have heard about Smyrna's problems, Pergamum's problems, Thyatira's problems, Philadelphia's problems, It's as if all of their laundry gets aired out at each location. So everybody heard about what was going on. They knew about each other's sins. They knew about each other's struggles. They knew about uh, the particulars of of, uh, each other. And obviously Jesus intended for it to be that way. There's a reason that there's seven churches. Not eight, not six, not nine, not eleven. Not 80. There's a reason there's seven. Because these seven churches are, if you will, representative of the churches at large. There were churches all over. I mean, just a few miles down the road from Laodicea is Colossae. Why didn't that church show up? Surely they had problems. They had issues, of course. There were specific things that Jesus could have addressed. There are seven churches because Jesus is intending to call attention to these. He's exhorting them. He's encouraging them. But there's also something for the larger church to to learn from each of these addresses. Thus, 
the public nature of what Jesus is doing. His rebuke, his encouragement, his challenge to them, his reminder of who he is to them is not only good for them, it was good for their neighbors, and it's good for us today. We get to learn from Jesus' exhortation, just as the other churches would have learned about what was going on. And so their promises become our promises. Their rebukes become our rebukes. Their encouragements become our encouragements. And so we get the benefit of watching the debate, the challenge, Jesus uh, airing their dirty laundry, if you will, is our benefit this morning. I want you to look in, and I want you to notice in each of these churches, so we'll just highlight, do a little teaching. In each of these, there's an address first, right? So Jesus um, uh, tells uh, the angel of the church of Smyrna, the angel of the angel of Pergamum, to write these things. Uh, the address comes. And then Jesus identifies himself. So, he calls on an aspect of who he is. And, and essentially when he does that, what he's doing is he's, he's highlighting an aspect of his character that is much needed in that particular church. And so you'll notice in the, in the church, uh, to Smyrna, he identifies himself as the one who is first and the last who died and came to life again. That's the way that Jesus identifies himself. And so essentially he says, I'm the sovereign over all creation. I wasn't created. I have always been. I will always be. And I'm the one who died, but who lives. And I think as you see, when we get into the church, that is going to be tremendously encouraging for that church in particular. Now, when he comes to Pergamum, he tells them, I am the one who comes and I have a double-edged sword coming out of my mouth. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. What a picture. A picture for a church that had issues. A picture for a church that was wrestling with a group that had infiltrated their midst and was leading them astray. And so Jesus says to them, hey, I'm the one who judges. I'm the one who comes and and can winnow out the, the wheat and the chaff. So Jesus identifies himself. The second thing is he has a claim to knowledge. He tells each church. I know. I know this about you. He has an an evaluation for all of them, a commendation and a rebuke. There are a couple of churches that receive only commendation. One of those is going to be the church in Smyrna. He offers next promises. Usually that's attached to an I will. I will do this. I will do that. And then he always gives a promise to the one who overcomes, the one who hears what he, his rebuke is or his challenges or his encouragement is, and he's telling them this is what is going to happen. Finally, he says this in each of them. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's really important because that's the aspect 
where Jesus is saying, I'm putting this out there, I'm broadcasting it, whoever has an ear, whoever has ability, hear this, heed it, learn from it, right? That's the encouragement to us. Do you have an ear? Do we have an ear? Can we hear what Jesus is saying? If we can, then it's an encouragement and it's incumbent upon us to heed what it is that Jesus is telling us. So let's look at these two churches. We'll read the first one together, and then we'll work our way through that, and then we'll do the second one. So um, Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to your word this morning and we're thankful for it. Father, we need to hear it. We want to understand it. Father, I pray that corporately we will hear Jesus and individually we will hear Jesus and the call upon our lives. And then, Father, may we heed his encouragement and his exhortation, his challenge to us perhaps to repent. For we know that that will be good for us corporately, individually. It will bring you great honor and glory and it will be of much good for us. So we pray, be at work in us this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Jesus' address to the church in Smyrna is full of paradoxes. It's it's really quite fascinating. In verse 9, he comes to them and he says, I know your poverty, I know your affliction, and I know your poverty, yet what? You're rich. He continues, he says, I know about those who slander you. They say they are Jews, but they're actually a synagogue of Satan. Then he says, the victor who is faithful to death will receive a crown of life. All of this comes from Jesus, who in verse 8 says, I was dead but I'm alive. Now, remember in the book of Revelation that one of the things that is happening is that Jesus is going to pull the veil back, as it were, and show us things that are true that we can't necessarily see nor understand from our senses and from our perception of what is taking place. 
And so part of what is happening in the book of Revelation is Jesus is saying to John, he's saying, look, here is what really is going on. Here's what it looks like on the surface. Pull back the veil. Here is the real story. Here is the real deal. So in all of these paradoxes, that's what you're getting. Things are not as they seem. Martyrs for Jesus don't lose. They win. Those who are poor, Jesus says, are actually quite wealthy. They're rich. Those who trace their ancestry to the Jewish uh, patriarchs aren't really Jews. They're part of the synagogue of Satan. The implication is that those who profess faith in Christ, be they Jew or Gentile in this instance, they are the true Israel. Not those who trace their lineage to the patriarchs, per se, those those who trace their lineage to the Lord Jesus. They are the true Israel. They are the true Jewish nation. Now, Jesus goes on. He tells them that they're going to suffer persecution for a short time. Ten days. Now, Remember, if you'll recall back when Dr. Johnson was here, Dr. Johnson said, Revelation is one of those books where what really, what you really want to do is, is do the opposite of what you've done in the other 66, uh, the other 65 books. And that is, where, when you can read it figuratively, you want to. And so in this instance, Jesus comes to them and he says, look, you're going to suffer persecution for 10 days. Really? Just, just 10 days? Well, I can, I can endure 10 days. And what he's saying is, no, a short period of time. Now, this would have made sense to them because in the Roman way of doing things, when you were incarcerated, okay, when you were incarcerated, it was for a short period. The Romans didn't know anything about long lifespans of incarceration. You were incarcerated for one reason, usually to get you to the death penalty. Okay? And so they incarcerated people for short periods of time. It was, they, they were just holding them in order to get to the final analysis. And so what Jesus seems to be saying is, listen, you're going to go through this short period, and after the short period, you'll be released, and great things are going to happen, and it's all going to come out great in the wash. No. That's not what Jesus tells them. Actually, what he says is, you're going to endure 10 days, a short period of an intense hardship, of suffering. But then on the other side of that, as you come out of it, you're probably going to endure even to the point of death, he says. You'll notice at the end of verse 10, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. And then the admonition, be faithful even to the point of death. So what Jesus was telling them probably was, look, um, it's, it's going to be intense, but at the end of the intensity, which will probably be your death, you will get a crown of life. Remember the paradoxes. Jesus tells them, listen, dying for me isn't the end. It's the beginning. That's hard. That's hard for us to see. That's hard for us to understand. But think about it. Jesus 
is the expert. He's the one who, as he's already told us, what? I died, but I'm alive. Look at me. Think about what has already taken place. So there were the apostles. Jesus is crucified. They scatter only to have Jesus rise again from the dead. They're, they've been stricken by fear. They're ready to give up on this whole thing. Jesus rises from the grave. They see him. He presents himself to them. What do they do? They die for him. They go, most of them are martyred. They go and they turn the world upside down. Jesus is coming to this church. They're, they're in intense persecution. They've stood firm. They've stood fast. They're doing exactly what they're supposed to do. Jesus doesn't promise them that it's, that everything's going to be a bed of roses at the end of this. Just hang on for ten days and it'll all be good. In fact, what he's saying is just hang on for the short period of intense persecution and then you'll be released. Meaning you'll probably die. Meaning you will receive the crown of life that I promise you. Jesus is the expert. He's the one who knows the truth. He is the one who has conquered death. He is the one that's already been through that so that he can come and tell us and exhort us and say, look, here I am. I was dead, but I'm alive. Believe me. So a couple years ago, we uh, um, right after we got Kylie, we had come home from China. We had a period of six months or so. And then one day we wake up and Kylie has this rash all over. Now, she's our fifth child. We're accustomed to rashes. It was the hands that swelled to twice their normal size that got us. And so we took her down to UMC, uh, University Medical Center there in Jackson. And, uh, of course, you know, they, they poke her and stick all this stuff in her and everything. And then we end up in the, uh, in the Blair Batson Children's Hospital. And, um, and so uh, this happened and then they sent us home and then it happened again about a week later. Only this time it was worse. So we go back down to UMC. They put us in the hospital. Now, it's a teaching hospital. And I'll never forget, so we're in there, and every day, two, three times a day, the gaggle of doctors would come around, and they would all go in, and they would look at her because she was a real case. And at the end of about a week in the hospital, her symptoms subsiding, the doctor just kind of did one of these numbers. Sorry, I don't, you know, we don't. We don't really know. We can't really pinpoint it. Now, all through this, of course, you know, me and Google are best friends, all right? And so I'm, you know, this symptom, that symptom. And so we talked to the doctor about a disease called Kawasaki's disease, which is found in Asian children, typically. And, uh, and it's an inflammation disease which causes can cause massive damage to the heart. And so we're going through all of this, and I've become a you know, Kawasaki expert. And so we raise this issue with the doctor. And the doc says, well, 
You know, we've thought about that, but she doesn't really have all the symptoms. Okay. And so at the end of a week, we got the, the, you know, they shrugged their shoulders and said it's some unknown virus and uh, it's obviously run its course. And so they sent us home. Well, not terribly long after that, we go to, for a regular scheduled appointment, we go to the International Adoption Clinic in Birmingham where the doctor sees all kinds of Asian children and has been seeing them for eons. And she's quite familiar with Kawasaki's disease. In fact, she's not just familiar with Kawasaki, she's very familiar with what is called incomplete Kawasaki's. And so then the expert said, I think what Kylie has gone through is an episode of incomplete Kawasaki. Ah, the expert had spoken. Right? When the expert speaks... There's a sense of calm, a sense of, okay, I'm good. Um, we know, we understand. And Jesus comes to this church, right? He's the expert. He knows what they're in the middle of. And through it all, he says, you'll get a crown of life. I understand where you're at. I understand what's going on. A crown of life awaits you. What could be more comforting and for the one who had experienced great and tremendous persecution in his life, had died, had risen again, to come to you and say, I understand where you're at, and in the end, you will get a crown of life, and it will all be okay. Listen, that's the very nature of the gospel. It's almost never what we expect. Just when you think it's okay to hate your enemy, Jesus comes along and says... Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And you go, huh? Just when you think being first is okay, Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 no. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Just when you think you're profitable for the kingdom and, and uh, everything is, you're, you're, you're indispensable, Jesus says you're going to have to die in order that you can live. See, that's really the nature of the gospel. It's almost always antithetical to what we think and the way we see the world. He, he almost always turns it upside down. And so here in this church, he comes to them and he takes what perhaps just sounds cruel. Why doesn't Jesus just deliver them? Why doesn't he just, why doesn't he just right now make it all good and let them be victorious and, and march in a beautiful parade and everything be great? Why isn't it that? Why is it suffering, persecution, death, and then a crown of life? Because it's often his way. We don't exactly know. But think about it. Jesus himself modeled exactly that. Go back and read Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it's possible, would you let this cup pass from me? Yet not. My will, but your will be done. See, that is the model that Jesus sets for us.
not my will, but your will. Let's look at the church at Pergamum. Verse 12, the angel of the church of Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Now, that's a reference we talked about last week that had already showed up in the uh, the previous church. It goes back to, to Numbers, I think it's chapter 24, somewhere in there. Um, that's the reference to that, beginning in verse 15. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, right? So the Nicolaitans... Uh, are teaching essentially the same thing that Balaam taught Balak to entice the Israelites with. They were enticing the church. They were they were asking the church to uh, uh, accept some of the local practices with respect to idolatry and and the worship of other gods and various forms of immorality. And then he says, verse 16, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious. I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now, Pergamum had some things going for it. They had stood fast in the face of intense opposition. Uh, even one of their number had, had died for doing so. They didn't renounce their faith in Jesus. The opposition was intense. Several times in this passage, he speaks of Satan's presence among them. So we have already the church in Smyrna, now in this church, you're, you're getting that veiled pullback. And so what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, those who are in opposition to me, right? What he doesn't mean is that Satan has his throne in the midst of Pergamum. What he means is, probably, uh, for instance, in Pergamum, one of the one of the the big temples was the temple to Zeus. It sits up on a, a little hill there, um, and uh, overlooking kind of the entire city of Smyrna, and, I mean a Pergamum. Uh, and so he's probably making reference to that temple, right? Satan has his uh, throne there in your midst. This is the curtain being pulled back. And what he's saying is, listen, the ones who are in opposition to me, they may as, they're, they're, they're associated with their father, the devil, the evil one, the one who would oppose me at all points. And so that's that curtain kind of getting pulled back, if you will. And so here Jesus says to them, listen, um, uh, I, you know, I, I understand, uh, there's, you have stood fast in the face of this opposition. You have done all the things that I have asked you to do. However, 
However, your problem is you've allowed the teaching of the Michaelations to take hold and to take root in your congregation. Now, again, we just kind of highlighted it as we made our way through it. Their teaching essentially was, it's okay, you can, you know, you can interact with, uh, with the various uh, pagan ideas. Um, it, it, you know, you can mix and mingle with some of that, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's okay. It, it, part of this perhaps has had to do with uh, the Jewish pop- population would tend to allow a certain amount of that thing to go on in their midst. And so perhaps that's what was taking place. But Jesus comes and says, it's not okay. It's not okay to pull here, pull there, pull here, pull there, uh, to, to expose yourself to this, these various forms of immorality. That is not okay. You need to take that teaching and you need to put it out of your midst. Now, this is one of those places where it seems somewhat self-evident, and yet it's very difficult for us, especially in our day, um, to do. And that is to understand that doctrine matters and truth matters and what we believe matters. It's so very difficult and so very challenging, especially in our world today, where, you know, all roads get there and, and it's, you know, what you believe, that's fine for you. What I believe is fine for me. And there's no thing, nothing called truth that's really there that we can end up at. That perhaps is one of our great challenges today. We're not talking about, you know, way down in the weed stuff. Let's just talk about the gospel. Is there agreement on what the gospel is? And I would submit to you there isn't. You go to this group, you'll find one thing. You go to that group, you'll find another. What's the truth? It's bewildering. It'll drive you crazy and and it'll cause you to give up. And so perhaps in this church, what was what had happened was they'd come along and they were offering these things and the church, well, we don't want to turn anybody away and it doesn't sound like it's that big of a deal and so okay. Because they had stood fast against other things, but they let this teaching come in. And so Jesus comes along and he says, yeah, you're going to have to, you're going to have to identify that and you're going to have to put that out of your midst. And that's challenging. And he says, if you don't do it, I'll do it. Probably not a pretty picture. Because what he tells them is, um, if you don't repent, And if you don't fight against the error, I'll come to you and I'll fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, the picture that you have of Jesus is that great-looking Middle Eastern man that's your best friend, and he's just going to put put his arm around you and love you all the way through. Okay, That picture right there should kind of obliterate that notion. He is a serious-minded Savior. And he cares about his church. Listen, what is this for? Well, it's for the protection of the church, of his people. He's saying it's okay. It's okay to do the hard thing. 
it's okay to expel the one from and the ones from your midst who are who've brought this false doctrine into your church and are teaching it. Hard, yes. Needed, absolutely. And so that is their challenge. And then he tells them, as we make our way to the end, and to the one who perseveres and does what I've called them to do, Jesus offers them two promises. Hidden manna and a white rock with their name on it. I got a white rock with my name on it. Um, I think you can understand the manna. Okay, so what a great picture, right? Hidden manna, manna from God. The Israelites had been in a in a wilderness journey, and God ministered to them. He fed them through their journey. We are, as a part of the church, currently yet still in our wilderness journey. And so what a beautiful promise that as you engage in that gospel life, right? Sin, repentance, faith. That's a regular occurrence. Repentance in the Christian life isn't a one-time act. It's an ongoing part of our Christian life. And so as you sin, repent, and trust in Christ, as you're involved in that circle of life, if you will, he is going to meet you and nourish you. And it's also, right, a forward-looking promise that he is probably an invitation, if you will, to that final supper. And that's where the white rock would come in. Now, I was going to tell you, you read ten different people. You want to talk about, you know, the struggle for truth? Read ten different people on the white rock with your name on it, and you're going to get twelve different answers, okay? It's just that kind of a little reference, like, what is this? Well, at least one aspect of it probably was that um, they would use sometimes colored rocks in the process of voting. All right. And so a black rock was a nay. A white rock was a yay. And um, and so that could be part of it. Um, and it, it seems to be it's a positive. So we know that we know whatever this white rock with the name on it is, is a positive thing. Um and so it seems to be some sort of an acceptance, right? That uh, you've done well, you're okay. This is a vote in the affirmative for you. And so we receive this white rock, which has our name on it, our name, or probably and most possibly the name of Jesus himself. So we become identified with him. He blesses us and he gives to us his name. We see that in other parts in the book of Revelation, right? The beast wants to put his mark on his people, that is his name, and the Savior wants to put his mark on his people. And so it seems to be that in some sense that's what's going on. But it's positive. It's, it's an encouraging thing, and that's the way that Jesus intends for them to hear it. And essentially is what he's saying to them is, I have you. You're mine. I'm going to nourish you. I'm going to protect you. I will put my name on you, and you belong to me. Now, here's where I want to finish up. All of this seems to 
to be contingent upon getting it right and doing the right thing. That's a little bit of a challenge for us as we come here. Is Jesus telling us, if you repent, then you've earned the right to be my child and I'll take care of you. Because that's not what the rest of Scripture tells us. What the rest of Scripture tells us is, lay aside all of your striving, trust by faith in the one who died for you, and he will receive you. Now remember one of the things that we said, one of the principles is, we don't learn really any new doctrine in the book of Revelation. We're getting a rehash of the rest of Scripture. So, Jesus isn't telling us, and he can't be telling the church, if you repent, then you'll be saved. What he's saying to them is, if you are mine, you will repent, in which case you will be saved. He would have to be saying it that way. And so essentially what he's saying is, listen, if you have ears to hear, you'll repent. That's what my people do. My people hear my voice, they know it, and they follow me, and they repent, and they turn to me. If they don't turn to me, they weren't mine. And so he's coming to the church, and he's challenging them. And and that just gets us back to repentance isn't a one-time act that happens at the beginning of faith. It's an ongoing part of the Christian life. Where our things are identified in our lives and we see them and we change those things. Now, as we're finishing, we need this. We need to hear the word like this. We need to hear Jesus' challenge and his exhortation and his encouragement. Why? Because we don't see everything. We don't even see half of everything. Remember, he's pulling the veil back for us. He's giving us an inside picture. Well, what about us? What about an inside picture of us? Do you get it? Do you always get it? I don't always get it. And so Jesus is helping us see what we cannot see. We have a now infamous story in our family. All I have to say is pizza box. And my kids know the family, it, that's, it's an inside thing. And it comes from a situation in which we were living in Yazoo City. I, occasionally I would have to go down to Jackson for different things. And so one time I had gone down there for something and I, I swung by my favorite pizza joint, a place called Soulshine Pizza. And they had this, it's an awesome pizza. It's called the Wild Bill. And it's a, it's a, a chicken with a white sauce with buffalo sauce on it. And I love that pizza. And so I would often buy a, a large pizza while I was down there. And I would bring that back. I would, I would eat three-fourths of it because I'm a real man. And then I would bring a couple of slices back, and I would stick it in the outside fridge. And everybody knew, don't touch the pizza it's mine, okay? Because I'm selfish like that. And so 
the infamous case is I came, I, I, so I had done that, exactly that. I went out into the refrigerator, I opened it up, and I looked in the refrigerator, and guess what? It was gone! And so I closed the refrigerator, and I went in, and I checked the inside refrigerator, and then I started. Who ate the pizza? And I grilled them. And I waterboarded them. (laughs) Chinese dripping water torture on their foreheads to find out who it was, who the culprit was that ate my pizza. And I was serious. Yes. And they all denied it. And then a few minutes later, Colin goes out to the refrigerator, and he emerges with what? A box with pizza in it. Now forever known as the pizza box story. How did I miss it? I have no idea, but I did. Listen, you and I can look Till we are blue in the face at our own hearts. And we'll miss it. Why? Because the Old Testament tells us that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? And then it goes on to tell us the Lord can know it. You'll miss it. You'll miss your own heart. You'll miss those things in your life. That you you should have seen, but you didn't see. And so we need Jesus to come along like this, right? We need Him to open us up and expose us. We need Him to come along in in His Word, to read the Word, to examine our lives. And listen, to to walk with people, to, to be in life together. Are you in a fellowship group? Are you in a small group? Are you in, are you in Sunday school? You gotta be kind of at those next level places in order to have relationships where people can feel free to be turned loose to look at you and say, have you thought about this? And you gotta have it. Tim Keller calls it to, everybody needs to have a deputy in their life. Somebody that you've put the badge on and you've said, you're free. You're free to call me on my junk. And then do it. And you gotta have it in your life. And, and it's gonna be parallel. It'll be part and parcel of what Jesus is doing in your life as the Word. The one who came, who's a, a lamp to your path and to your feet. Do you have that? You have somebody in your life that's doing that, honestly? You know, what you want is a friend who will stab you in the chest and not in the back. Right? They'll put the knife in. and They'll tell you the hard things that you need to hear. And that's what Jesus is doing for the churches. And that's what he does for us. Let me pray. Father, thanks for your goodness to us today and for your word. Lord, we want to hear it. We want to be faithful to it, and so we pray, Father, you will expose for us those things that need to be repented of, both corporately and individually. Give us wisdom, and do it all for your glory 
and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.